Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Have you ever struggled with the idea, the concept of the wrath of God? I mean, I don't know about you, but I have struggled with it. It seems to be a thought, a doctrine, if you will, that seems so unfair. I mean, what could we possibly do on earth that could warrant God's wrath leading people to have to spend an eternity in hell? The thought that nice people, people that you and I even know, might someplace go to this place of this eternal hell, I don't know about you, but when I really think about it, that's a little overwhelming. It can even get disheartening. I'd rather not think about it. C.S. Lewis even said this. He said, there's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove than this if it lay in my power. In fact, some Christians even feel like they have to apologize on behalf of God because of this attribute. After all, to, to talk about or speak of the wrath of God, it can cause us or make us appear narrow-minded or, or judgmental or, or fundamentalist. Some of us, we would prefer just to have a God who is a God of love and mercy. Yeah, certainly, I would much more rather preach about that God. But, God. but that God is just not God enough. And so while we might want to remove or dismiss God's wrath, We just don't have that option. In fact, if you and I can get to the point where we properly understand the wrath of God, we'd realize it's an essential component to God's goodness. So, I ask you once again the question we've been asking throughout this series, how big is your God? How big is your God? The wrath of God is actually referenced over 600 times in Scripture. And David simply said it this way in Psalm 7. He said, God is angry with the wicked every day. I find it interesting that Jesus, and sometimes when we think about Jesus and the God of the Old Testament, we think, okay, that's, you know, wrathful God, vengeful God in the Old Testament. But Jesus is like the softer, milder version of God, right? But the reality is Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. And Jesus said this statement. He said, John chapter 3, I mean, he drew a line in the sand, and he said in John chapter 3, verse 36, he said, whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Why? It says, because God's wrath remains on him. One of the reasons that the Pharisees uh, killed or wanted Jesus killed and had him killed was because he told them in Matthew chapter 23 that God's wrath was coming upon them. So, what is it? What is God's wrath? Simply put, God's wrath is his settled hostility. It's his response towards our sin and any and all manifestations of our sins. Settled hostility means simply that God's holiness cannot and will not coexist with our sin. That God's wrath is really this this holy hatred that God has. It's his holy anger towards all that is unholy. It's his righteous indignation against anything that is unrighteous. Now, God's wrath in reality is an expression, a part of an expression of God's love. What am I talking about? Well, God's God, we know, according to Scripture, God is holy, and his holiness demands justice. I want you to think about this. A world without justice 
What would that be like? I mean, that would be an awful world to live in. Think about it this. Deep down, when, when you see injustice, when you see somebody, an oppressor, a thief, a killer, and you see them get away with it, or they're set free, or they're not convicted, uh, what happens? You, you just realize, like, you get angry about that when there isn't justice. Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, he was a survivor of a Croatian genocide of the past, past, not what's currently going on now, but he was a, 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 a survivor of that. And he basically said that the only way that he was able to keep from going insane while he watched friends and family around him being destroyed and killed, the only way he, he was able to not go insane was knowing that there was a God who gets angry at what was happening and that that God would one day punish the wrongdoer. He said, if your God doesn't have the ability to feel wrath, you'll end up having just deep within this insatiable desire for revenge and for vengeance. And he went on to say that only when you believe that God has a sword in his hand will you and I ever be able to lay down the sword in our own hand. So, when you think about a God, a God who's full of love, but also there's this side, this other component, this wrath side, how do they coexist? Well, think about this. When you love someone, don't you hate anything that destroys that, them? If you, have, if you have kids, think about your kids, and, and maybe you're raising young ones now, or maybe you raise them and they're adult children now. When they were going through that season, or if they're going through that season now, and you see moral deficiencies in them, and you look and you observe, and maybe they're, they're just being cruel, or rebellious, or maybe they're lazy, or they're, they're starting to lie a lot, you know that harms them. And so your love for them gets angry at those moral deficiencies, those traits you see in your kids. And it's not in spite of your love that you get angry at them. It's because of your love for them. And you know, man, if those traits get left unchecked, that's going to make a genuine, real relationship with them pretty impossible. And so in the same way, God hates our sin because he knows it's destroying us. He knows it destroys our relationship with him, our relationship with others, with ourselves. And of course, our culture is saying the opposite of what God tells us. Culture is trying to, to convince us that our sin isn't going to destroy. Our sin's going to lead to life and freedom. And yet, that narrative is a lie. Sin always leads to ruin. Always. Ruined relationships, ruined eternities. So what I want to do for the remainder of our time is I want to run through and talk about some of the components of the wrath of God. Again, how big is your God? Is your God God enough to be a God of love, but as we see in Scripture, also this God of wrath? Let's talk about that. So God's wrath, first of all, consists of what theologians call the passive wrath of God. Everybody say passive. Okay, the passive wrath of God is when, when we experience the natural consequences of our decisions and our choices. 
that we are the one bringing upon the consequences upon ourselves, and God essentially just steps out and stays out of the way and lets us experience the results of our choices. You do drugs. What is that going to do? It's going to harm you. It's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy your life. It's going to destroy your relationships. You start lying to people. What is that going to do? That's going to ruin trust. It's going to erode trust in the relationships that you would have with people. What do you do? You watch pornography, and what does that do? That destroys intimacy with the the one you're married to or the one you will be married to in the future. You drink and drive, cause an accident, get pulled over, whatever the case may be, what happens? Might lose your license, might go to jail. There are natural consequences to our choices. God's passive wrath simply stays out of the way and allows us to experience the results of our choices, the consequences of our choices. This passive wrath of God will actually help us maybe understand some passages of Scripture maybe we've wondered about before. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles or go on the Version Bible app to Exodus chapter 34. And that's where we're going to be. We're just going to look at a couple of verses this morning. And, and in these verses is God's having a conversation with Moses. And in Exodus 34 verse 7, it says this. God says, I do not excuse the guilty. I don't let them get away with it. He says, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. And maybe you've read that before and you're like, I don't get that. I don't understand that. Well, first of all, let me tell you what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God actively holds kids morally accountable for the actions of their parents or grandparents. It can't mean that according to Ezekiel chapter 18, where God says the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. But what it does mean is that the parent's sin can have consequences in the lives of their children and their children's children and their children's children's children. Think about it. But dad goes to prison for the rest of his life, has a couple young kids. Is that going to affect those kids' life? Absolutely. You better believe it. Now, God isn't actively punishing the kids because of the parents' sin. It's just that that parent's sin is going to end up having consequences upon his family. It's going to affect everyone close to that person who sinned. And that's what we're talking about. That's the passive wrath of God. But then there's also the active wrath of God. Everybody say active. So you have the passive wrath and you have the active wrath. The active wrath is when God steps in and he enhances or he intensifies the natural consequences of the decisions that we've been making. And that might help us understand some scripture. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, it tells us about how Adam and Eve had sinned against God and God booted them out or kicked them out of the garden because of their sin. But if you do a little bit of a deeper dive, you see in Genesis chapter 3 verse 8, it tells us that Adam and Eve, once they sinned, they had already hidden from God because of their sin. So they decided to hide from God, and God stepped in and simply granted for them what they had already chosen for themselves. I think about the story of Pharaoh and the people of Israel and Moses. And maybe you've heard this story before, and you've heard, okay, I remember reading, or I've heard that God hardened 
Pharaoh's heart. And I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense. Why would God do that? And man, what if he were to do that to me? Well, let's think about the, the wrath of God. As you look closer at the story, you discover in Exodus chapter 8, verses 15 and 32, you discover that Pharaoh had already hardened his own heart. He had already hardened his own heart several times, so God was stepping in and simply making his choice permanent. The wrath of God is a frightening reality because in reality it's an extension of the choices that we've made for ourselves. As I mentioned earlier, God's wrath is, is part of God's love and his mercy. And you see that in that first wrath we talked about, the passive wrath of God. And it's in that stage, and when we're in that passive wrath of God, that God is moving and God is acting. He's trying to get our attention. He's trying to wake us up so that we will course correct. And so we might be experiencing some of the bitter consequences of our choices and God's allowing that before we get to the place where we fully and permanently uh, destroy our lives. Maybe some of you right now, you're in a place in your life where you're currently experiencing something that's gone wrong in your life. You've done something wrong. There might be sin in your life. And as a result of that, there's pain in your life. Maybe for some of you, there's loneliness in your life. And perhaps, perhaps God is using that to wake you up to try to get your attention. He wants you to course correct and get right with him. Why? Because he knows our pain that we're going through and sometimes even the humility that, that we go through because, because maybe we get caught in something and, and there has to be a humbling. He knows that him allowing that to happen and you to suffer the consequences is that tender outflowing of his compassion because he wants you to wake up to what he's trying to get your attention to. Sin is always trying to take you somewhere where you don't want to go. And, in those, and when you're experiencing the passive wrath of God, it is not God trying to pay you back. It's him trying to bring you back to himself. Why? Because he loves you. He loves his creation. And God also hates our sin when creation, our, what he created, gets trampled on. And we know the solution. We, of course, know the solution is the cross. And here's, we're going to talk about the cross more in a bit. But I want you to think about this part of the cross. God chose to allow his love to overcome his wrath. He didn't have to, but he chose to. In fact, God told the, uh, Moses this in this verse, Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. He said that God's justice extends to like three and four generations. But it also says God's mercy extends to thousands of generations. In other words, the love of God, the grace of God, the compassion, the mercy of God is exponentially greater than the wrath of God. One paraphrase puts Exodus 34, verse 7 this way. It says, Our God is the one who makes anger distant, but he brings his compassion near. God makes his anger, his wrath distant, but his compassion is close. And when you begin to think about that, you're like, God, I don't understand. Why, why do you choose your love over your compassion? That's a thought, by the way, that 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us these, thing, these are things that even the angels would like to understand. The angels were baffled by God's choice to act upon his compassion rather than act upon his wrath. 
for the angel, that just, the angels, that, that math didn't add up for them. Why would God choose compassion over wrath? Because both are part of who God is. Why not give humans who sinned, who've fallen short, why not give us the godless eternity that we deserve? Why not start over with a new creation? Uh, think about the angels and their circumstances. We don't have any indication in Scripture that God gave the fallen angels a chance to repent or a chance to be redeemed. We don't have any indication. Once they rejected his authority, it seems that was it. God's wrath came upon the fallen angels. Why would God choose his compassion for us over his wrath? Romans chapter 5, we're going to look at a couple verses. This is one of those passages, famous passages. It might be a passage you're familiar with. If you're not, it's one of those you want to circle, highlight, you want to write in the front of your Bible because it explains this whole thing. And Paul expresses his wonder and his awe over God choosing compassion over wrath. Listen to this. Paul says, he says, you see, at just the right time, when you and I were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Everybody say ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While, you, while we were sinners, everybody say sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him, Jesus? For if while we were God's enemies, everybody say enemies, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life. Notice in that passage, you and I aren't called wayward children. Notice that we're not called, you know, confused sheep. What were we called? We're called godless, sinners, God's enemies. And yet in this passage, against this back, dark, dark backdrop, we see in this passage the incredible love of God. There is truly no greater wonder in the universe that baffled the angels, knowing God's a God of love and God of, a God of wrath. There's no greater part of God, no greater wonder in the universe than the love of God, the compassion of God, God's love for us specifically. So how do we escape? How do we escape the wrath of God and receive the love and compassion. You and I, we're on this side of the cross, so we get it. I'll explain it in a minute. But I want you to think about that question if you didn't have Jesus on the cross yet. Because it's a question that baffled Jew Jewish theologians for centuries. How do you escape God's wrath and experience his great love and compassion? And the reason they were, they were, they were struck by this and it confused them is because God said, again in our passage, Exodus 34, verse 7, God told Moses, he says, I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. So think about this. If God isn't excusing the guilty, then whose sin is he forgiving? If he doesn't excuse the guilty, whose sin is he forgiving when he forgives inequity, rebellion, and sin? Because aren't all of those who sin by definition guilty? 
Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Romans 3 says, all have sinned. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what's the result of that? We're guilty. The result is we deserve, Romans 6, eternal death, eternal separation from God. Moses was confused by that verse. What he didn't know, what the angels didn't know, was that one day God was going to do the miraculous. God was going to simultaneously punish the guilty and simultaneously forgive them all at once. Punish the guilty and forgive them all at once. How? Well, you and I, I think we know, right? How? Because he transferred our guilt upon Jesus, and then he, God punished Jesus in our place. Listen to how Isaiah described the gospel, the cross, the crucifixion. Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, verse 5, he said, But he, Jesus, was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. It's describing the crucifixion process. And then Isaiah said, All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. And yet the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the sins of all of us. The beauty of the gospel is that the one who had the right to condemn chose instead to pour out his love and grace and compassion. Even though we stand condemned, God said, you don't have to fear. Don't be afraid because I'm going to take your judgment, your punishment upon myself through my son Jesus on the cross. So, when you find that uh, condemnation is whispering to you, when you find that the, the devil is whispering to you, you're finished, you're nothing, you're nobody, you are finished. When you hear those voices inside, let the words of Jesus on the cross ring, ring louder to you. Those voices say you're finished, but Jesus says, no, 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 it's finished. It is finished. I took care of it. I took care of your problem. I took your guilt upon myself. One final thought to know about God's wrath based on God's conversation with Moses in Exodus 34. God's wrath is still coming. God's wrath is still coming. Exodus 34 verse 7 tells us that God doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. That wrath awaits the guilty. But the great news in that passage, God told Moses that, God, that he, God, was slow to anger, slow to wrath. At least that's what the, the English version says, that God is slow to anger. But you know what the Hebrew version says? It says, God has long nostrils. God has long nostrils. Quite a descriptive picture, right? I mean, so what is long nostrils, big noses? What does that have to do with God being slow to anger? Well, think about this. What happens to you when you get angry? I mean, you're seething. You're, you're just so upset and so angry. Man, what happens? Your nostrils literally flare, right? And, and, and man, you're like a bull ready to charge. And in that moment, what do you do to calm down your anger? You close your mouth. Take a deep breath. In and out. You slow down. And you take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. And if you take 
Seinfeld reference, uh, Frank Costanza's advice, you then say, serenity now. The point God is making to Moses, that God's righteous anger towards sin, it exists and it's real. But God isn't short-tempered. God isn't short-tempered. He doesn't want to pour out his wrath. He's patient. He's heartbroken over our sin. He's longing for us to repent. He has big nostrils, deep breaths by God. God is patient with us. And the apostle Peter said, this is why there's such a big gap between when God would pronounce judgment and when he would bring the actual judgment upon the people or the wrath upon the people. He talks about it in 2 Peter chapter 3. And you could see this played out in the Old Testament. The Jewish people, um, God got to the point where, where he had to bring his wrath upon them, and he did that in the form of the Babylonians who came and took them captive. I want you to listen. In light of what we're talking about, the wrath of God, I want you to listen to this passage. And notice in 2 Corinthians, uh, Chronicles Chapter 36, starting in verse 15, it says this, The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them, the Jewish people, through his messengers again and again. So he sent word. It wasn't a one-time thing. He didn't say, oh, one time. No, no, he said again and again. Why? Because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they, what did they do? They mocked God's messengers. They despised his words, the messenger's words, God's words, and they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there's no longer a remedy. And so the wrath came. Verse 17, So God brought upon them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary. And he did not spare the young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And God waited and waited and waited. He kept giving them ample warning. Get right with me. Get right with me. But they wouldn't. And finally, he got to the point there was no remedy. In other words, they got to the point where they are beyond being saved. And so the wrath of God came. But he was patient again and again and again and again, sending his message. Another example of God's patience, God waited more than 100 years from the time he told Moses, or excuse me, Noah, I am bringing a flood upon this earth because of the wickedness of people. He, God waited 100 years from the time he told Noah to the time he actually brought the flood. Why did God wait so long? 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, God is patient with you. Not, he doesn't want anyone to, appear, to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so Noah preached for over 100 years. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 tells us he was, a, he was a preacher of righteousness. God was giving people an opportunity, a chance to get right with him, to repent. And he waited patiently. You and I, man, we want justice instantly, right? Like We demand it right away. But God is patient. Uh, it's interesting to me. Have you ever heard of the name Methuselah? Some of you have heard that name, right? Uh, trivia, he's the oldest person to ever live. He was a walking parable of the slowness of God's uh, wrath, of God's mercy and grace and patience. The name Methuselah actually means when he is dead, it shall be sent. 
Moses, uh, Methuselah lived 969 years according to Genesis 5.27. 969 years. God was patient with people, trying to get them to get right with God. When Methuselah died, again, what is his name? His name means when he is dead, it shall be sent. The year Methuselah died, that was the year the flood was actually sent upon the earth. 2 Peter chapter 3 says that throughout human history, people mistake God's slowness to anger with, okay, he's not involved, he's absent. Noah's generation assumed there's no flood coming. Give me a break. We're not going to have a flood, but it did. Today, 2,000 years after Jesus saying he's coming back, people mock that. Oh, God, God's not coming. God's not coming back, but Jesus is. We're going to be talking about that in our Revelation series in the fall. We're going to be going through the book of Revelation. And in fact, that series really has spawned out of this message and even the message series we're getting ready to do after this series. Because in the last days, or I should say the last of the last days, that's when the slowness of God's anger and passive wrath from thousands and thousands of years, that's when it begins to shift to the active wrath of God. You can look at the book of Revelation as God now moving into his act of wrath. And the book of Revelation makes it clear. The wrath of God is coming. Why? Because Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming. And just like Noah was mocked, I mean, he's building a boat in the middle of nowhere, and people are saying, hey, this thing, you know, he's saying it's going to float, water's coming, and they're like, what are you talking about? He was mocked. And so you and I, as Jesus followers, we're mocked for the message of Jesus. But the reason Jesus delays his coming back, as the Apostle Peter said, is to give us another day. Another day to repent. In fact, for every person who is a non-believer here, who doesn't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's my hope, it's God's hope, that today is your day. That today is your day of repentance. He's calling out to you. He's whispering to you. And, and as he's doing that, maybe through something in your life, and maybe there's some junk there, or there's some sin in your life, or there's some pain, or you're troubled about your future. God's going to use whatever it is, pain, loneliness, sin. He'll use it all as messengers of mercy to wake you up, to get your attention. Please don't ignore Ignore it. Listen, God did not create any of us for wrath. He created us for relationship. In fact, uh, God didn't design hell for us. Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 tells us that the eternal fire was actually prepared, made for the devil and his angels. The last person that wants you to experience the wrath of God is God himself. Why? Because he knows what it is. He knows how bad it is. Sometimes we just think, oh, eternity later down the road, eternal hell. We just kind of dismiss that. God knows how serious it is. And God wants you to say yes to his gift of eternal life. He's not going to deprive you of the dignity of choice. He'll let you make the choice. He'll extend a pardon to anybody who wants it. But you have to choose. So what will you do? 
What choice will you make? It's tragic to me to think that tens of millions, billions of people will choose to reject God's offer of love and grace and mercy, forgiveness of our sins, have the opportunity for life. And by that rejection, we'll actually be choosing the wrath of God. So what is your choice? Jesus said it this way. John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son, you have eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son, Jesus, will not see life. Why? Because God's wrath will just remain and stay upon you. Listen, your heavenly Father is calling out to you right now. What is your choice? There is only one way to escape the wrath of God. And that's through his son, Jesus Christ, who died for your sins in your place so that you could live and so that I could live for all of eternity. What's your choice? Will you choose life today? You choose the son, you will have eternal life. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.